4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Last week we were in verses 1 and 2. We continue our study now on the second half of this letter together, the practical side, so to speak. As you're turning there, I have a friend who was describing a special Olympics he witnessed, the 400 meter race. The special Olympics is different than the regular Olympics where people are locked in and ready to go. In this case, they were sort of more hanging out, waiting on things. But when the Racers lined up, all eight of them, and the gun fired. They took off running in various spurts until one of the girls tripped, fell, scraped her elbows, and rolled off into the infield. She'd had a a bad fall. And at that point, all the other racers stopped, turned around, looked, went back to her, lifted her up, locked arms, and walked across the finish line together. What are we trying to do as a ministry at Redeemer? We're trying to emulate the Special Olympics. We're trying to avoid the competition that tears us apart, the competition that destroys the church, divides Christians. We're not aiming to look around and say, well, am I holier than they are? You know, am I doing better than those people so I can feel good about myself? No, 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 no. That's not what we're trying to produce here. How how do we know when the gospel is working? When the gospel produces love among Christians. What does that love look like? Paul tells you in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, and I want you to consider it with me tonight. How do we relate to other believers? Hear now God's word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is, uh, of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and we pray that you would cause us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. We pray that you'd show us Jesus, you'd lead us and guide us in the way that you would have us to go. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we relate to other Christians? It matters how we do, but but not to purchase salvation. Do not misunderstand. Uh, It's interesting, ruminating in his memoir, it's not about the bike. Cyclist Lance Armstrong, once widely admired and now disgraced, winner of seven Tour de France races, now stripped of those victories, wrote in the year 2000, 
prior to the discovery. He wrote, at the end of the day, if there was indeed some body, capital B, or presence standing there to judge me, I hoped I would be judged on whether I had lived a true life. Not on whether I believed in a certain book or whether I'd been baptized. Now he's been found out for years he had, as he admitted to Oprah, for years he had lied and cheated and doped. And the consequence, there's no hope for him in being judged on living a true life. He hasn't. He didn't. And no Christian has either. Our hope is grace, friends. Forgiveness through Jesus. Our hope is not in our perfect performance. We don't have one. But in the performance of Jesus on our behalf. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. We get grace and life in Christ as a blessing and a gift. And you can't purchase it. So Paul, when he talks about living a life worthy of the calling you've received, isn't talking about meriting anything from God here. He isn't saying live a true life of love and get saved or or live a true life of love and you'll merit God's grace. But he is saying this, because you have been graced, and oh, if you are a Christian, you stand in grace. You've been lavished with grace. If you have been graced, be Gracious is what he's saying. It matters how we live, not to get salvation, but to reflect salvation. What's what's fitting, what's appropriate to being graced by God? Paul says here in a word, what's appropriate? Unity. That's where our focus is in verses 3 through 6. How do we live together as Christians? Unity. So we have three questions tonight to get at this text. What does Paul call us to? to do with unity why and how do we do it what what does he call us to do he says we are to aim to maintain unity why because we already have it and how do we do this eagerly in the bond of peace bearing with one another in love that's where we're headed so so what has he called us to do what what is a christian supposed to do in response to the grace of jesus you are he says verse three to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He says, maintain, not attain. There is already unity, he says. You don't do anything to get it, to acquire it, to possess it, to make it happen. He's, he's, he's not saying, you know, if you'll just do the best that you can, God might give you unity. He's saying God has already made you as a Christian, one in Christ, with everybody else, In Christ. Now live out what God has already done. Listen, Jesus prayed for this in John 17, the great high priestly prayer. Before he went to the cross, he prayed, remember? What did he pray? He prayed to God that they might be one, speaking of his disciples, as we are one, speaking of himself and the Father. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He prayed for oneness. So let me ask you this question. Was Jesus' prayer unanswered for the last 20 centuries? Absolutely not. It has been answered in all centuries by the real spiritual unity of all true Christians. Unity is not something we create 
We have it already in Christ, but it is something that we protect and we are to aim to maintain. We'll get at that. It needs to be cultivated, but that's not easy in the church. Some wit once said to dwell with to dwell above with saints we love indeed that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, that is another story. Yeah, it's, it's hard. This is not going to be easy, right? And so to help us, to convince you and persuade you that this is a goal you must embrace, that you need to be actually eager for, he piles up reasons why you need to know you are already one. And then he lays on your conscience the conviction that you are already one. So then live it out. And so he piles it up here. And so why do we already have unity? That's the second big question for tonight. We already have unity, friends, not because we hold hands in a circle and sing, blessed be the tie that binds. Not because we sit around the same campfire and have warm feelings of inclusion. Not because we all like each other and never have conflicts. And not because we are all in lockstep like mindless robots and never disagree about anything. We don't have unity in any of that, friend. Our unity is established on something solid, what God himself. Our unity is built, he says, on the Trinity. And he describes a sevenfold unity built on the three members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice those two features of verses 3 through 6 for a second, 4 through 6, and we'll come back to each one independently. But notice it's built on the Trinity. Notice he says there's already, verse 4, there's one Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 5 he says there's one Lord, he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6, he says there's one God and Father of all, who's over all. He's speaking one level of the Trinity, but he actually speaks of seven things. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Now listen, listen we're going to walk through this first. <laughs> Prepare yourself. And if you feel as we study this, like Paul is just piling it on, you're right. If you think Paul thinks you might not pay attention to him on this. You're right. If you think Paul thinks you need to be persuaded about this, you do. And if you think Paul's going to be satisfied with anything less than eagerness to maintain unity, then you're wrong. Be eager, he says, because of what you already have. So he speaks of seven areas of unity. Walk with them through... Walk through them with me briefly here. Notice he says in the first place, we are already one body. And it would be helpful to read these all, I think, this way, to read them one and only one. In other words, there is one and only one body. Christ is the head and his church is the body. And the hand can't take an axe to the foot, chop it off, and still get where it needs to go in a healthy way. And to cut other Christians off is to cut our nose off to spite our face. And we do damage to ourselves because we're one, one body. If your heart goes on strike today, you wouldn't be here tonight. If your lungs went on strike, you wouldn't be here tonight. We are a body and literally we need one another, whether we're Presbyterians or Episcopalians or Baptists. 
Let me ask you this question. Have you you come to the conviction yet that your body, by that I mean your actual physical body, is not your own? It's, It's entirely natural to think of it as your own, but it isn't. The the Bible makes clear for Christians, you didn't make it. Jesus is the Lord of it. The body belongs to the Lord and the Lord of the body. It's his to do with what he wants. It's not yours to do with what you want. Likewise, the church, it's his. We are but members of the body and he chooses who's a part of it, not us. And it is our responsibility to accept one another because he's already made us one. In the body. That's the first thing. Secondly, we share one and only one spirit. Capital S. The Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit is in every believer. In each of us. We are individually temples of the Holy Spirit. And we are being built together as a temple. In which God will dwell. And to turn our backs then on any other Christian is to turn our back on the very same Holy Spirit in them who gave us life. It's preposterous and monstrous. We share not only that, we share one and only one hope, he says. Notice his language. We're all headed towards the same goal. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And we're all going to get there. I'm curious about these Tough mutter races. Have you heard of these? It's not a typical 10K or half marathon, marathon distance run. But, but more like a millis- as, as far I've never done one. I have a fantasy that I'll do one one day. I'm enough of a procrastinator to avoid that. It's kind of a military-style obstacle course. I mean, you crawl through mud, tough mudder. You, you duck under dangling live wires that can really shock you. You, you, um, you climb ropes and nets and things like that, right? The goal is what? The goal is to finish. The, the goal is not to get the best time, not to come in first. Just finish. Everyone finish. Hopefully everybody on your team and hopefully everybody who runs it. Finish. So the, the racers boost one another up, the obstacles. They stop and lend a hand to help the next guy over the obstacle they've completed. They do so in order to get everybody to the finish line. That's a tough mutter. That's what the church is to be about, friends. We, we have one destiny, and whether you're, forgive it, whether you're post-mill, on-mill, pre-mill, no-mill, or you don't know, you don't give a rip about mill. <laughs> Views of the millennium. Whatever, whatever you think is going to happen before Jesus comes, Jesus is coming. We're all going to see him face to face, and we're going to live with him forever in heaven. Now, if you've got it all mapped out, and you've got it figured out daytime and hour, that I'd love to talk with you about that. And others don't have that figured out. <laughs> But that's where we're headed, friends. And so, you see, what he's saying is this. To not bear patiently with others on this journey is to say in our hearts, well, they're not really going the same direction I'm going. They're going to the other place. But we're not. We're one, with one hope. 
And, and so there's this unity in, in the spirit of God. We've been made one body by the spirit of God. The spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our everlasting inheritance and hope. And there's one spirit. Then there's unity in God the Son, Jesus the Lord. You see that here in the next phrases. We have one and only one Lord, he says. He's speaking of our service of the King, Jesus, right? Now listen, some people would suggest, well, you know, the way to visible unity in the Christian church is to put all the churches of every denomination under the leadership of one man, some supreme leader, so to speak. That leadership at the top, they say, would give us unity. Despite whatever doctrinal squabbles, disagreements we might have. What that fails to realize, friends, is that God has already placed all Christians under the leadership of one man. The man, Christ Jesus who is king and head over all things for the church, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. We already have organizational unity. I know the church feels like chaos, right? I don't mean our church plant, but maybe that too. But we already have organizational unity at the top where it matters most. Jesus is king and head of his church. We're all, every Christian is under him, gathered around him. And we profess one faith. And here he's referring to our faith, at least in Jesus here. We believe in him. We believe in Jesus. And and no, we've not all arrived sort of, you know, uh, to some perfect unity in faith. We don't all have perfect knowledge. We're, a lot of us, very immature. He'll go on at chapter 4, verse 15 to say, you know, because we're immature, We need to speak the truth and love to one another so we can grow up and mature. But on the very basics, on all the fundamental issues, we agree, all Christians look to Jesus to save us, to forgive us, to reconcile us to God. We share the same faith and we share one and only one baptism, one outward visible mark of inclusion in the covenant community. Nobody here got baptized, I I, I doubt. Nobody in the New Testament got baptized in the name of the Apostle Paul or in the name of the Apostle Peter. Uh, Nobody in the history of the church, I hope, ever got baptized in the name of Luther, in the name of Calvin, or in the name of Wesley. No, we're baptized into the name of Christ, and we're Christians. We're named by his name. We have one and only one baptism, one outward visible mark of entrance into his community. And we have one and only seventh thing, one and only... One God and Father of all. We have unity in God the Father. One God and Father of Jewish Christians. One God and Father of Gentile Christians. It's the same Father. Poor, rich, black, white, male, female, slave or free. We have one Father. We're all God's children in Jesus. Brothers and sisters in the family. And I know we didn't choose one another. And he did. It's our responsibility to accept one another and love one another. God is overall. There's no Christian anywhere out from under the umbrella of his sovereign care. He is through all. There is no Christian anywhere in whom the Father is not at work. God is in all. There is no Christian anywhere in whom the Father is not manifesting himself, whether Anglican or Reformed or Wesleyan. As somebody said, it is no more possible to split the church than it is to split the Godhead. 
I, I know, I know, what, I know, I can hear what you're saying. There are people who say, I can't believe in Christianity because there are so many different churches. This is my father's excuse, part of it. And I want to say to you, if, if you think that way, I want you to know that we're glad that you're here. We want you here. You need to understand this. There are so many different churches. There is one church. Always has been. Always will be. Only one body. But we, sinners as we are, can live at cross purposes with God. We can live in a way that makes everyone else think the church is split. And in doing so, we harm one another. And in doing so, we are in a losing cause. Why would you spend your life in the futility of working against what God has irrevocably established? So Paul says, we don't establish unity in the church. We don't make unity happen. We need to understand that we already have unity. And we are to be about aiming to maintain unity. So how do we do that? How do we maintain the unity of the spirit? He says to be eager. He says we do it in the bond of peace. And he says we need to bear with one another. I want you to think about these last three things. So what should we do? Well, first of all, we should spare no effort. That's what he means by be eager. It's a, it's a present participle, continuing tense. It's, it means diligent activity all the time. We are to do this. That does not mean you have to attend every worship service of every Christian church in Siloam Springs every weekend. Well, you couldn't physically do it anyway. But, but that's not what he's saying. But we are to be eager to do it. To do what then? We are to maintain it in the bond of peace. The unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The bond is peace. The unity of the spirit which is the bond which is peace. That's what he's saying. It's peace already created by the Lord. Jesus has already ended the war between you and God. And reconciled enemies made them friends. He has already ended the war between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Who in Paul's day hated one another. And, and chapter 2, he's already ended the war. He's already brought us together in a state of peace to live at war then with others would be to live at war with the Lord himself. And so cooperation is important, he says. We are, we are not rivals with any other Christian. We are partners. And at Redeemer, I want you to know this, we aim to see all Christian churches thrive. But this raises all kinds of questions, and I want to spend the rest of our time on this. What of all the different churches? What about denominations? And what about church plants like ours? What should we make of all these things? If there's truly only one church, well, in the first place, what about all the different churches? The one true church shows up all over the world in little communities called local churches. But all local churches are just part of the one true church. And we do need to be careful here. We, we, it needs to be said, not all local churches are true churches. Not everyone who says they're Christian is Christian. There is such a thing, and the Bible speaks of it, as false churches as well as true churches. This false 
Christianity, people who believe and teach things that are so contrary to Christianity that you can't even say they believe in the same God. They don't look to Jesus to save them. They don't listen to or obey his word. There are true churches and false churches. There's only one true church. Now, among all the true churches, there's a variety of faithfulness and a variety of beliefs about secondary issues. For instance, how one church governs itself. Listen, if you can believe it, not everybody thinks the church should be governed by what the Bible calls presbyters, which is another word for elders, which is where we get the name Presbyterian. We happen to believe that the Bible says the church should be governed by elders. Not everybody believes that. One version of church government may be closer to the Bible's view of the church and how it ought to be, and one may be farther away, organizationally. Yet the one that's closer organizationally may be much farther away, relationally, through its dysfunction and impurity in the way it lives it out because of the faults of the leaders and the people. The one that is less organizationally biblical may be far more godly in the way that it lives out mutual love. These things matter. They matter for the the health of the church, but they don't define the existence of the church. At Redeemer, listen, we want to be both organizationally biblical and relationally biblical. And we want to follow the Bible's teaching and do so in a loving, patient, forbearing way. We want it all. Why would we want anything less than that? And we're not what we should be, and we never will be what we should be. Never. No church is. Second, we want to say this, and I know this will come as a surprise to you, but not every local church agrees with every other local church on everything. So we have to talk about denominations. One Christian minister used an illustration like this. He imagined the conversation between the two blind men that Jesus healed. There's a blind man that Jesus healed recorded in John chapter 9. And there's a blind man he healed in Luke chapter 18. In the case of the man in John 9, Jesus spat on the ground, mixed the saliva and clay, and he anointed the man's eyes with the moisture, the mixture. And then he told the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And in the case of the man in Luke 18... He did none of that. He simply commanded the man to see, and he did. So the preacher imagines these two highly favored men meeting one another at some point and having a conversation about it. What happened to them? The man in the ninth of John asked the man in the 18th of Luke, what did it feel like when he put that mixture of clay and spittle on your eyes? Clay and spittle? Replies the man in Luke 18, I don't know what you're talking about with clay and spittle. Well, you know, when he spat on the ground, he mixed it all together, he put it up on your eyes. How did that feel? The man in Luke 18 replies, there was nothing put on my eyes. He just said, be healed, and I was healed. So on and on the conversation goes, with the one man putting his questions and the other showing confusion, until finally the man from John 9 says, look, I don't think you were healed at all. You never were really blind Or you're still blind. Jesus healed the blind by putting a mixture of clay and spit on their eyes. And so the preacher concluded, two denominations came into being. The Mudites and the (laughs) Anti-Mudites. 
Now, now it's true. It's true. Denominations have started over less than that. And it is evil and wrong when it happens so trivially. Interestingly, though, in our culture and day, it's cool to be non-denominational. It's very cool. When I did denominational campus ministry at the University of Arkansas, I was always intrigued by a fellow ministry that billed itself publicly as a non-denominational ministry, though they were actually tied to a church that was part of a denomination, officially. (laughs) But it was an effort, whatever you think of that, it was an effort at reaching the people through the non-denominationalism, which our culture thinks sounds just so much more biblical. It reminds me, I just as an aside, it reminds me of fellow classmates in seminary who were from South Korea. And because over 100 years ago, Presbyterian missionaries went to South Korea and were so widely successful by God's grace with the gospel, that the gospel preaching came to be known as, you know, it came from Presbyterian churches, that the Baptist churches had to call themselves Baptist Presbyterians just to gain a hearing with people for the gospel. It's kind of interesting, I know. To me anyway. But listen, I do want to say this in favor, taking a big risk, I realize, with this generation. I do want to say this in favor of denominations. Question, how did they start? Originally, they were invented so that people would not be forced against their conscience to join a state-mandated church that they felt was wrong in its beliefs about certain teachings of the Bible. So denominations came into being in order to give Christians liberty of conscience, freedom in their conscience to worship God as they understood God's word to teach. They wanted to be faithful to him And they were given the freedom to do that without being forced, you know, to worship, say, uh, maybe in a Lutheran church because, you know, the prince of your country was Lutheran and he mandated everybody in this country has to be Lutheran. Well, you can be Anglican too. There was a liberty and a freedom of conscience. It's not a bad thing. And I do want to say this as well. We can best express our unity visibly with others. Not by being our own independent church and saying we're autonomous and separate from everybody else in the world, which is a way of saying we're our own denomination against you. But rather through relationships of accountability and responsibility with others in the body of Christ. By being held accountable in relationships through a connectionalism of churches, a denomination. That's a good thing for you. It guards this pulpit. If you find me to be preaching heresy, okay, come speak to me, please. But you can actually take that charge to the elders of God's church, well beyond Salem Springs, across the state of Arkansas, and even to, the, to the, all the churches gathered as the Presbyterian Church in America across North America. Okay? Please don't do that. <laughs> The point is, there, there is protection for the people of God in the pulpit because I'm officially accountable, and, and you understand, I don't resent that in the least. I, I became a Presbyterian in part because I didn't want to be a Lone Ranger. 
out doing my own thing. I wanted to be in fellowship with brothers and partners in the ministry who would love me enough to call me to account. Well, anyway, these things can be helpful. And so, and so we can partner closely with those we most closely agree with over certain things, while all the while remaining charitable and peaceable towards all Christians everywhere of every denomination and stripe. Listen, I, I'm, a, I'm a happy Reformed Presbyterian. And, you, and if you're visiting today, I don't talk about this all the time. <laughs> Maybe the first time I've ever said that publicly. I just want you to know that. It's, it seems like it's the text here. But I'm a happy Reformed Presbyterian. You don't have to know what that is or agree with it to be a part of this church. And as your pastor, I want you to know I don't hide what I believe. You can ask me any time. It's actually written down. I've subscribed to a statement of beliefs. You can look at all of them, and we'd love for you to do that. It's a way of loving people to tell others what you actually believe. And I would encourage you to examine what I believe against what the Bible teaches always, sermon after sermon. But, but you're welcome here, even if you don't think like I do. Lord willing, as a new church plant, you, this has to be said, Lord willing, we have all kinds of people here who are not Reformed Presbyterians, but are rather all in process, all wrestling with what does God's word say, and how do I live it and believe it. Lord, keep us from being a church where everyone thinks they've arrived and has nothing to learn from anybody else. How arrogant would we hold our theology? How arrogantly? How unloving and cold we might get by insulating ourselves that way against the rest of humanity. May the Lord never let that happen. So that's a word about denominations. I want to say that a word about a new church in Siloam as we close. This didn't mean to lie there. I actually got a conclusion too. A new church in Siloam. This is important for you to understand, and I'll I'll try to be brief here. We we didn't start a new church in Siloam because we think the only church, uh, we're the only church here, that the church didn't exist here in Siloam. There are all kinds of godly believers all over this community. Why start a new church? Well, in part and significantly, Siloam Springs has grown approximately 40% since the year 2000. But the churches haven't grown 40% in that time period, either in size or number. There are thousands upon thousands of non-Christians in this community who need the gospel. There are many skeptics, and more and more people are dropping out of the church, having been raised in it. We need to lovingly pursue people. Church planting, missiologists say, is the number one way to reach new people with the gospel. It's one of the reasons. We have... Why have more than one local church in any community at all? There are people who believe that. I think a church in Fayetteville is called the Church at Arkansas. They don't believe this, but it gives the impression that they're the only church in Arkansas. And I'm going to slander my brothers. I shouldn't have said that. It wasn't in the notes. But there are people, there are people, and they are not those. There are people who do believe. That, you know, if, if we could just create one giant local super church, that should be it. Oftentimes what you'll find those people doing is starting a church with that as a goal. I think they must live very frustrated lives because it's never happened anywhere. 
And even in a community as small as 15,000 people, this place, there's no place in Siloam Springs big enough to hold all of us for public gathered worship. We have to be broken down into groups somehow. No single pastor could know 15,000 people. Ten pastors couldn't know 15,000 people. Well, a hundred pastors might begin to scratch the surface of really knowing and being known, loving and being loved, caring for the needs of God's people and equipping them for ministry. God has decided that in his kingdom there are under shepherds, under Jesus, who need to know the sheep and that we should gather in smaller collections. He hasn't told us how big or how small. In order to be known and loved and taught, and not in a cookie-cutter way, but in accordance with where people really are spiritually. Not by just dropping some bomb on you of theology from some guy who doesn't know you. However helpful that can be at times, you need a pastor. Everybody does. I need a pastor. So it's, it's a good thing that there are many local churches and church plants. And so you see it's also a good thing that there are many denominations. At least it's desirable in a broken world. And where we are not in the same denomination, we are yet in the same universal church. And love must rule and abound. And our aim here at Redeemer is to pray for and encourage our brothers and sisters in local churches. Our attitude is we're glad you're here ahead of us. It's nice to be here with you. How can we learn from you? How can we serve you? How can we be a blessing to you? And so Paul, to conclude, says, you be eager for this. You maintain the bond of peace. You're already at peace. Maintain it. Be at war with others. And going back to verses 1 and 2, I think he would say, bear patiently with one another, with all humility. And I, I like how Rick Phillips put it, and I'll close with this. Perhaps the Lord leaves us with differences to work out among ourselves in order to teach us how to love. Isn't that the real work of our lives, to learn how to love other people? So God leaves intelligent brothers, his words, blind to what I think is the overwhelming evidence in favor of infant baptism, just so I can learn to be humble and gentle in relationship with them. And God leaves me with whatever lack of understanding I have, just so my brothers can learn how to be patient and forbearing with a thick-headed person like me. Be that to one another, Paul says. Embrace your unity with all Christians, because God has embraced you in unity with himself and all Christians by grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's a marvelous thing that you have done and that you have destined to be exposed in greater glory to the eyes of the universe in days ahead when the church in all her glory is revealed. We pray that you'd help us to love here and now. And long for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to.